Welcome not only to, to Gospel Church, but to our, our very first uh, sermon through our next series. Uh, it's been uh, awesome going through First Peter. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely learned a lot, both through hearing the preaching and also from organising the sermons as well. I think it's just been really uh, relevant for the, the culture that, that we're in. Uh, but I'm, I'm, yeah, equally if not more excited about this series through Psalms. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's... There's a lot that we can learn from it, and I mean, we, we want to be a church that worships Jesus. I think that's really what the Psalms are, are, are all about. So, um, But before we actually get started on the specific passages that we've heard in the Bible readings, I kind of want to give a, a bit of a brief introduction to the book of Psalms, just so we can kind of know where we're heading in the series. Uh, so, just got a few uh, things on the slides, just to, I mean, most of you will know this, but just to get us all up to speed with what the book of Psalms even even is. Uh, so the, the book of Psalms, it's also referred to as the, the Psalter, with a, a PS, Psalter. Um, it's, it's a collection of, of 150 individual Psalms, uh, and it's found in, in five different books, so there is a little bit of structure to it. Um, yeah, I won't read all of them out, but that's the, the five different major books that have been compiled together into the book of Psalms. Uh, many different authors. Most of the books of the Bible, have, you know, each book has got a specific author. Um, for this, you know, King David wrote most of them, but you've got the sons of Korah, Asaph. Uh, plenty of them are anonymous. We just don't, don't know who, who wrote it. Uh, the Psalms also come in, in several different genres. Uh, for the most part, though, they're still all poetry or, or lyrics to songs. The, the whole reason why these Psalms were written were to sing praises to God uh, the word, uh, where we get the word psalms, the Greek word psalmos means to, to pluck a musical instrument to, to sing praise to God. So that they were meant to be uh, made to put music to it and to sing praises to God. Uh, and so that's why most of them were, when we, if you read them in the original language, they're, they're written like Hebrew poetry. Uh, and, th- and that can be a bit weird for us, especially if trying to put it into song even in the original Hebrew, a lot of them don't actually rhyme. You know, we're used to our Western poetry where things rhyme, n- there's nice, neat order to it. Each line should be about the same length. But, um, but yeah, for, for the, for the uh, Hebrews, it was all about repetition and things like acrostic poems where each section of the psalm starts with a different letter of the alphabet. And, and this was brilliant for, for the, um, the young ones there being able to memorize the scriptures by having it all in acrostic poems. And I think for us, that, that's why I love singing that Psalm 103 is I've then got scripture running through my head when I've got the song in my head. It's a, it's a great way of memorizing, memorizing the Bible. Uh, now, I've just got um, yeah, a little diagram here. You don't need to read all of it. But this, this is a, a sort of a computer program that I've got that sort of splits the Psalms up into different categories. And so you can do it... Um, yeah, split it up according to different things. This is split up according to genre. Uh, so you can see there that the lament psalms are in, in blue. But that, that's actually, a, a, the majority of the psalms are actually, um, yeah, you know, mainly David, you know, crying out laments to God, uh, even though they are actually, they end in, in praise as well. But yes, yeah, so you've got praise psalms, you've got hymns, thanksgiving, wisdom psalms, royal psalms that are about the, the, uh, the kings of Israel. Um, if you look up any other list that categorizes them, Every list is going to be slightly different because there's this isn't a neat kind of thing. There's a lot of overlap. You read a psalm and go, well, it, it could be a royal psalm, it could be a song of lament, but it also praises God as well. So you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, then this is split up according to all the different authors. So you can see in the bottom corner there, David. 
Um, David, most of his are in blue, so it means he was a pretty sad guy. A lot of us always lamenting. It was a tough job being the king of Israel, so he uh, wrote a lot of the lament psalms. Right. Uh, but despite all those different categories, there's still one um, overarching theme. It's that they sing praises to God. So um, even the ones where yeah they're lamenting, they still turn to praising God. Uh, I think there's actually some valuable lessons in that, that um, it's okay to turn to God when things are going terribly and let God know that you're upset about these things. We kind of are a bit fearful of doing that. But if you look at the Psalms, that's, that's actually a pretty common thing to do. It's... In fact, it's what we should do. If you're struggling with something, running away from God or not bringing it to God is actually far worse than... That's the whole point of suffering is we run directly to God. But then one thing that we... Well, I know I have a tendency to do is to cry out to God when things are going wrong. You know, ask Him for things. He answers those prayers and then I forget to go to God to thank Him. I'll only come the next time I need something from Him. But we see in the Psalms here... There are songs of thanks, uh, psalms of thanksgiving where he gives thanks for previous lament psalms where he's asked for things. So good, valuable lessons for us in that. Uh, there's plenty of different things in, in history uh, where some of the psalms look back and thank God for what he's done in, in Israel's history. What has he done in the past in the Exodus, in rescuing people, uh, in, in um, referring back to creation, all sorts of things like that. Uh, And I think most importantly, in a lot of the Psalms, there's verses that refer to the future, God's coming Messiah, which we'll we'll get to that very soon once we start going through Psalm 2. But I think one of the other great things about the Psalms is just the wide variety of raw human emotion that we see in it. We we can just relate to it so well. Um, It's not sugar-coated, light-hearted, fluffy prayers. It... it, um, Reveals the broad range of human emotion, but within the context of worshipping God. So whether you're going through suffering, or sickness, or abandonment, or struggling with your own sin, or struggling with injustice in the world, there's a psalm that you can turn to for whatever it is that you're actually facing. So I'd encourage you to actually look up lists of psalms and the different categories that they're in, and you can... You can pray through them according to what you're going through. There is a psalm in which you can completely relate, relate to it and, and still offer praise to God no matter what you're actually going through. And so because it's such a, a unique book um, that it's kind of you know, a bit um, all over the place, it's not chronological, it, it's not, um, not everything is in a, in a specific order. If, if you want to read an individual psalm, in order to understand it, you don't need to read the psalm before and the psalm after to to get the context. And so because of that, uh, this series that we're doing, uh, it's basically the individual preachers will be picking psalms that they'll they'll be going through. So there's not really going to be any specific order or rhyme or reason to it, Um, except I'm going to totally break that rule straight away because I'm starting off with Psalm 1 and 2. Um, But from then on, it's going to be, you know, a bit, bit all over the place, but... But there is a reason why I'm doing that. There's a reason why I wanted to start off with um, Psalm 1 and 2. Because I believe it is actually intentionally placed there. God inspired all of the individual Psalms. But I also believe that he was sovereign and in control. When the book was being compiled together, I believe God had his hand in that as well. And so I I don't think it's a, a mistake or a coincidence that the book starts off with Psalm 1 and 2. I think there's intentional design in in that.
And I think it's because Psalm 1 and 2 kind of offer a, a lens uh, in which we can look through to understand the rest of the book of Psalms. And, and so it was one of the, the early church fathers, a guy called Jerome, uh, referred to the book of Psalms as a giant mansion with many rooms. And Psalm 1 and 2 is, is the door or the interpretive key to the, to the entire book. So what's this entire series going to be about? It's, it's going to be about worshipping God. That, that's what we aim to do. That's what we aim to do when we sing, when we pray to God. Even in our sermons, it's all about offering worship to God. And so the opening two psalms, uh, they can be an intro, introduction or maybe I'd call it a, a filter. So how do we approach God? If, if the whole aim of this book is to offer worship to God, where do we even begin? Where do we start if we want to come into the God's presence in amongst his people and offer praise to God? I, I think these first two psalms tell us how to enter into that. Uh, so just quickly, though, I want to um, look at whether this, this uh, psalm or these two psalms that we've just read, uh, how, I want to quickly look at how they relate to one another or whether they are actually one psalm or whether they're two individual and separate psalms. Uh, now, I'll just, just quickly go through this, but there's, um, yeah, there are a few people that believe that this is actually just one individual psalm um, or that one was written to complement the other. Um, so, Acts 13, uh, verse 32 uh, is where Psalm 2 is, is quoted. Uh, so, it says, and this is uh, the Apostle speaking, it says, And we bring the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which was in the Bible reading beforehand. Um, so that, that makes sense, a quote from the second psalm, and he even says it's from the second psalm. Uh, one thing that's interesting, though, is that there are actually certain manuscripts of this passage in Acts in which it says, from the first psalm, and then it quotes the exact same passage. And so the, the reason for that is there were actually certain groups of Jews and even certain groups of Jewish Christians that believed that Psalm 1 was just the an introduction and then... Psalm 2 was actually the first psalm, and it, and it went from, from there. Um, so I think they, they are actually two separate psalms. They're, they're different genres. Uh, they, they obviously have a different audience, as, as we'll see when we go through them. Psalm 1 is, is written to individuals. Psalm 2 is more broad, talking about kings and nations. Uh, they each have their own individual structure. Um, and I think... Yeah, most importantly, they were written at different times, and I, I won't go into all of the details of the compilation process of the Psalms. If you're interested, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, but basically, the earliest manuscripts that we have during the compilation process, Psalm 2 was, was added, and then Psalm 1 was added later than that, so we know that they were written separately. Um, but I, I do actually think one was written to complement the other. So just, just look in um, Psalm 1, verse 1. It's a, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And, and now turn to the end of Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 verse 12 said, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's actually really common throughout the book of Psalms. You'll see a line repeated at the start of a psalm and at the end of the psalm, kind of to form brackets around it to say, this is the start and the end of the psalm. This is what the whole thing is about. And so the fact that they have this, this very similar phrase at the start of Psalm 1, and at the end of Psalm 2 means uh, it was written, one was written to, to complement the other. Right, but enough of the introduction, let's just uh, dig into the actual Psalms. 
Uh, so Psalm 1, verse 1, and it's uh, commonly known as a, a wisdom psalm, which I'll explain as, as we go along. Uh, so from Psalm 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor, uh, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So that, that, that opening word, blessed, is the one. Uh, commonly would use that term blessings means that you're, you know, you've been blessed, you've been favoured by God. Um, but the, the term used here is slightly different than the, the common phrase that you normally hear in, in other passages uh, or, or used in common expression. Uh, it, it basically just means to be happy. This psalm is going to tell us how to find the good life. Uh, happy is the one that does what's required in these following verses. And it doesn't mean happy in a, in a cheery, bubbly kind of way. It's something much deeper than that. How to find true joy. How to find what we were actually made for. When things are as they should be. When we have a right relationship with God, a right relationship with others around us, things are as they should be. Living in harmonious relationship with God. So how can we be blessed? How can we actually find that good life? We're faced with, with two opposing options. Um, often, I don't know why we refer to it that we're at a crossroad. That kind of implies that we've got three different options. So we'll, we'll call it a T-junction, I guess, here, because there are two clear opposite paths that we can go down. And so he starts off by giving the negative example. Here's, here's what not to do, basically. Be like the, the wicked, the sinners and the scoffers. So it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, so, just drop a table of the, the different words he uses there. That, that's a really good example here of, of what we call a Hebrew parallel. He's basically saying the same thing, again, three times, to, to add emphasis. Um, and and he add, you know, normally for, for us, if we wanted to add emphasis, we would... Um, I guess we might speak louder, but if we were writing it down, uh, we might put it in bold or put it in capital letters saying, here's what I'm really trying to get at. Um, in, in Hebrew poetry, it, it's by the parts where you see repetition. That's the parts they're really trying to focus on. Um, and, and he's changing it slightly each time to kind of build on top of the previous example. The, these examples actually get worse and worse and worse, further and further down that path that we're not meant to go down. We're not to be like the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers. But then it says that we're not meant to walk in their counsel or stand in their way or sit in their seats. So he's, intent, he's intensifying the example each time, but he's also intensifying our relationship to those people each time. Uh, so the, the people that we're to avoid, uh, the first lot, the, the wicked, uh, that's a word that, that refers to those who, who have no faith in God. They're not part of God's covenant people. And then the, the sinners was, a, was a, a word used for those who reject God's law. And then finally, the scoffers, they're actually those who openly mock the righteous and the innocent. They, they actually take pleasure in the suffering of others. But it also shows the specific relationship to them that we have to avoid. So it starts off saying we should not walk in their counsel. It means that we're not to take their advice. We should be going to the word of God for wisdom, not our culture, 
not a self-help guru, but not even our, our family and friends, if they don't have the Word of God as their ultimate foundation, then we can't get our wisdom and our advice from them. And then if we go down that path, it leads to the next point, the next stage, that we're not to stand with them. We're not to get caught up in the same behaviours as them. And that kind of makes logical sense. If first you start taking their advice, then you start getting caught up in what they do as well, just not just what they say. And finally, it says not to sit with the scoffers. So after walking alongside of them, taking their advice and starting to behave like them, you eventually sit down and become one of them. He's saying don't actually become one of them. And it's not a warning against having non-Christian friends. It's not saying anything like that at all. It's when we're influenced to turn away from God's law, turn away from God's word, that's when it becomes a problem. And, and it, is, it is also a warning, this T-junction that we're at. Once you start heading down that path, it then continues further and further down the path. I mean, that, that's true of our sin, isn't it? When we, when we sin... If we don't repent of it, we get desensitized to it. And then it's easier to go further and further each time. So don't, so avoid this past. Don't go along with their unbiblical life advice. Don't join in their sin. Don't become one of them and you will be blessed. So he, so he gives the negative example. But then he, he also gives an alternative, the positive example, the other path to go down. That we delight in the law of the Lord. So we not only avoid those who, uh, who break God's law, but we delight in the law of the Lord. There's, there's an interesting uh, choice of phrase there. No, notice that on the one hand, you've got disobedience, but he doesn't say on the other hand, instead of being like the disobedient ones, just be obedient. But notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who obey God's law. It, it's, it's blessed are those who delight in God's law. To, to love the law, to see its benefits... To not see God's law as an obligation or something that we have to do begrudgingly. And then if we delight in it, then obedience is, is kind of the obvious byproduct. If you, if you love it and cherish God's law, then obedience will follow later. And so the Hebrew word here for law is, is the Torah. Uh, and so, I mean, that, yeah, there's, there's debate over what that could actually mean or what all, of, all that that entails. Uh, so, I mean, it could just refer to God's law given to his people in, in the Torah or the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, it could be more broad than that, speaking of the Old Testament. And I, I think it is that the, the word, uh, it doesn't just mean law, but it means God's teaching. All that God is teaching us through his word. So it's, it's much more broad than that. Uh, and, I, and I think that still applies for us today. It's not just talking about his commands, uh, his, his moral law, but it's all that God has taught us in his word we need to delight in that. That's how you can be blessed, is by delighting in God's Word. It says to meditate on it day and night. So to meditate on it. I think that, that's, a, that's a real uh, challenge for us, is to not just read God's Word, not to just um, tick it off the list for, the, for today. You know, you've, you've done your readings for today. We're actually to meditate on it, dwell on it, think about it. Actually pray to God as you're reading through the word. Pray to him and say, speak to me, Lord. Change me, shape me, make me more like Christ as I read through your word. 
and it says to read it day and meditate on it day and night. And, and that, that phrase just means constantly, all, all the time, as a part of your regular routine, your daily life. Uh, but I think there is good advice in there, uh, day and night, starting your day in the Word and ending your day in the Word. I've, I've been really challenged on that recently. And it, um, it makes a huge difference. We, we can be so easily distracted that we wake up and the first thing that we do is turn on the TV or look at our phone or go out and about. We've got our big long list of things to do. There's, there's always plenty of, of distractions. But, but starting the day off straight in the Word uh, and then ending the day in the Word as well, meditating on God's Word. So what's your routine? What's the first thing that you do when you wake up? What's the last thing that you do before you go to bed? That's perhaps something that we could discuss together afterwards. What, what measures are you putting in place to make sure that you're staying in the Word? You know, even things like, I would really encourage you to get you know, a Bible reading plan that, that says these are the, the passages I, I want to get through each day. Um, not, not to, again, not to just tick things off the list where to actually really love and, and dwell upon God's Word. But, but I think things like Bible reading plans are a really good start to make sure that it's a part of our daily routine. So we're not to simply do the opposite, you know, just simply uh, do the opposite to those who are breaking God's law, but we're, we're to cherish God's Word. We're to see God's law for what it really is. That God created us and He knows what's best for us and he, and he loves us. And so when He gave us His law, He did it because He cares for us. So it makes sense that when we, when we delight in God's instruction manuals for our life, given that He created us, it kind of makes sense that things run more smoothly when we follow and obey and delight in His law. And so we see that in, in the next couple of verses. So let's uh, look at... Uh, verse 3 and 4, because in verse 1 and 2 you see the, the contrasting decisions that we could make, the paths that we can go down, and then verse 3 and 4 we have the contrasting consequences of that decision. So for those who delight in God's word, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So you can see why it's often called a, a wisdom psalm. It, it's just like the wisdom literature of, of, of the Proverbs, of Job, of the Ecclesiastes. It kind of has that, that ring to it of the, the two different paths and here's how life will go well and here's what leads to destruction. And so the, the Proverbs are, are filled with wise life advice. You know, it's, it's, it's almost as if God made us and he knows what's best for us. Crazy. So God's law is designed for our good, but it also means that disobedience is, is to our detriment. And we, we see that in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, there, there's the real uh, obvious ways that, you know, drunkenness can lead to, to liver failure, that, um, that sexual immorality can lead to all sorts of, not just disease, but relationship breakdowns. You know, there's the, the obvious examples. But even things like unforgiveness and, and holding bitterness towards someone, it destroys relationships. It can even destroy our health. Gossip and lies. I mean, being, being self-centered and prideful. These sins aren't just bad for those around us. They're actually self-destructive behaviors. Life doesn't go well 
when the whole aim of our own life focus on, is, focuses on ourselves. So when we follow God's ways, things run smoother. But we need to be careful not to go beyond what these verses are saying. It's definitely not saying nothing will ever go wrong. Follow God's ways and you'll never experience pain. You'll never suffer. You'll never be sick. You'll, you'll never have uh, relational conflict. And we've, we've, we've just spent you know, 12 weeks in First Peter, which is all about how the church is not at home here. We'll actually suffer here. Our, our, our hope isn't in this world. So it's not saying that we'll never suffer. You know, it, it, it needs to be balanced. In the same way that you, you balance out the book of Proverbs with, with Job, you see that Job was righteous and yet still suffered greatly. I mean, we, we, we can see it even from the other Psalms. There are Psalms where David complains that the, the righteous are being downtrodden and why are the wicked prospering? So, so how do we make sense of all of that? It says that we'll prosper not really about what happens to us it's about our foundation and, and that's why i love the, the image of the of the tree planted by a river notice it doesn't say and it, you'll be a tree planted by a river and there'll never be a drought there'll never be bad weather you know it, the the image there is actually saying well actually there there still will probably be a drought things will still go wrong but when the drought comes you'll have roots by the river you'll have a sure and solid foundation you'll be next to the source of life that's exactly the same for us. God doesn't promise us an easy life. But unlike the wicked, we actually have hope. The hope that we've just, again, spent 12 weeks learning about it in First Peter. So when the trials come, our perspective is totally different. We can still have joy because we know God and we know what it means to be forgiven. When things in life are uncertain, we actually have complete confidence because we know the God who is sovereign and who reigns on the throne. That's a sure foundation. And if you don't know God, then you don't have this confidence. When the wind comes, you'll be like chaff, easily blown away, not like a tree with deep roots. But again, if, if, if you're like many of the psalmists, you, you might be saying, well, I just don't see it. I, I see Christians suffering around the world. I see people who are standing up for what's right get condemned and mocked. And the world is still full of injustice. Those who are greedy seem to be prospering more than those who are generous. There's thousands of unsolved murder and rape cases. Those who sin against God seem to be getting away with it. It seems like there's no consequence for sin. But, but the answer is just wait a while. Uh, look, look down in, in verse 5. That there is judgment. Because verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So this could have two meanings. It could be referring to final judgment in the end. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it is just yet. Um, it could refer to the fact that these wicked are judged and deemed to be outside the congregation of God's people. That's what it's referring to here. Outside of God's people at the temple as they come together to worship God, they're excluded from the presence of God. They're excluded from God's people coming together to worship Him. And, and basically, as far as this being an introduction, the, the, the book of Psalms is actually saying, come no further. If, if you've gone down the wrong path here, you can't enter 
into God's presence and worship God unless you're on the right path, unless you become one of those people. So again, it refers back to the two choices at the start. Are you standing with the wicked or are you one of God's people? See, that, that's prosperity. When it talks about us, us prospering there, and, and that, that's why the, the, the prosperity gospel is actually so stupid, not, not just because it makes false promises about, oh, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and all these things that just simply aren't true. It actually doesn't have much to offer. It, it's just offering money and physical health. That this is, this is the true prosperity that we get from God. It, it's just so much better than what false gospels have to offer. That we get to come into the presence of God and worship Him. That, that's something that's so much better than what anything else can offer. It's what we were made for, was to worship God. We get to gather together and be His people. That is prosperity. And that's a sure foundation for our life. Again, because it's what we were made for. But I do think this passage does actually also refer to final judgment. So let's uh, look down in verse 6. Not just judgment in being excluded from the congregation of God's people. But verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Death at the end. God will separate people in judgment, the wicked and the righteous. We, we just need to see things longer term. Yes, the wicked do sometimes prosper and get away with things here and now, but God will sort it out. God will make all things right. That's why sin doesn't pay. And if we want to continue on in this book, we need to make sure that we're on his side, one of his covenant people. But the problem is we're actually on the wrong side. None of us were born with a right relationship with God. We've all been on the wrong side of these two options. It's easy when we discuss the wicked and the righteous to, to think about someone else that's just so, been so terrible to us. Oh, they're definitely on, on that side. But we've rejected God's law. We haven't delighted in His law. We've rejected God. We've rejected His law. We've, we've even been the scoffer sometimes. So how do we actually fix this? So this, this psalm isn't actually teaching works, just, just be a good person, delight in law, and then you'll, then you'll become one of his people. It's saying to those who are already a part of God's covenant people, you have a sure foundation. You can be confident that you'll prosper rather than perish, and you can come into God's presence and worship him. But how do you actually do that? How do you become one of God's people? Let's just continue on uh, into Psalm 2. So it's basically broken up into four different sections. We'll go through this a little bit quicker uh, than, than we did the previous one. But, so we'll just get an overall feel for it. Okay, so let's read through Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So already you can see it's, it's actually quite different than Psalm 1. Uh, you know, Psalm 1, talking about individuals, this is obviously much more corporate. It's talking about nations and, and kings. Um, but it does still have similar phrases in there, similar words. It talks about the wicked and their counsel and their plans against God and His law. Uh, but it does introduce a new thing. The wicked kings and nations set themselves up against the Lord and against His anointed. 
So what is this referring to here, the Lord's anointed? So uh, originally it, it did refer to the king of Israel. So during a, a ceremony in which they were sworn in, the, the inauguration, uh, they were anointed with oil, uh, most likely by the priests. And, and some people believe this psalm was actually used uh, during that, that ceremony to, um, to have God's anointed and appointed king of Israel. And it was to show that this king was chosen by God to lead with the authority given by God. Uh, but, but due to various promises as we go through the Old Testament, especially chronologically as more and more gets revealed, uh, there's these promises that, that God is going to give a future king, an anointed one, that will come and rule, but n- not quite in the same way as all these earthly kings, you know, David, and there'll be someone from the line of David, but there's, there's someone far better to come. And so the word for anointed here, the, the Hebrew word, we actually get the word Messiah, uh, or in the Greek, uh, Christos, which we get the word Christ. And so although various kings were anointed, the, the Old Testament people of Israel were waiting for a Messiah, or waiting for the Messiah, the Christ. And so these people that are rejecting God, as a result, they're rejecting God's plans, they're, they're rejecting Israel and the king, and their kings, but they're actually fighting against God and God's Messiah. And so how are they actually fighting against them? Well, it, it says in verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The cords that they, they, they see themselves as being uh, ensnared by God and His law. It basically means they don't want to live under God's reign and rule and His authority. They see it as restrictive, when in fact God's law actually gives us life. We, we, we saw from, from chapter 1 that, that it's actually God gives us His law because He knows what's best for us. But instead they go, no... I don't want to live under that oppressive law. I want to do my own thing. And nothing has actually changed. That, that's the same for us today in all of our sin. Every evil action, every sin that we commit is a way in which we reject God's authority. Every time we do our own thing and live for ourselves, we're saying, who does God think he is to tell me how to live? Well, he's God. That, that's why he can tell us how to live. So look at God's response. Uh, from verse 4, 4 to 6. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The, low, the, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, this is another one of those things where it's similar to Psalm 1. There's the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And there's the inevitable judgment that God brings. They can't continue in rebellion forever. And the reason why they can't continue in rebellion forever is because this isn't a fair fight. This isn't two equal opposing forces, good versus evil. You know, yin and yang. There's um, a thing called dualism, which there are um, certain groups of of professing Christians and especially um, early in church history that believe this dualism that you had Two equal and opposite forces, light and darkness, God versus Satan, this you know, cosmic, eternal battle between God and Satan. But that's not the categories that we have in Scripture. We, we have God, the Creator, 
and then everything else, the creation. That's, that's it. Everything falls into one of these two categories, God or not God. And that's why he has no equal. He has no rival. There's, there's no force that can actually come against him. And here they go, let's plot against God. His response is just to laugh because it's, it's stupid, it's foolish. Why would anyone think that they can do anything against the sovereign creator of the universe who made them? Why would clay have power over the potter? Why would anything be able to thwart God or even his Messiah? It, it's such an uneven fight that it's just ridiculous. God, God laughs and finds it ridiculous. So he's filled with both amusement and righteous anger. So that's how, how he responds to the wicked, but then he turns to his Messiah. So let's let, uh, read verses 7 through 9. It says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in, in one sense, it did. this verse did apply to the kings of Israel, that they were made sons of God. But, but in a much more real sense, it's fulfilled in the Messiah. And it's not saying this verse has been used to suggest that Jesus was just a regular person who became the Son of God in the same way that the kings would be appointed as sons of God. But that you are my son, today I have begotten you. That, that language isn't about Jesus becoming the Son of God. It's about inaugurating his ministry as Messiah and King. So look at what God the Father does for Jesus. And I'm, I'm giving away the ending of who the identity of the Messiah is here, but you already know that. I know. Shock. Look at what the Father does for Jesus in this passage. He makes him ruler over all the nations. And Jesus does this by coming to earth, living a sinless life and dying in our place for his people. He now has a people for himself to worship him from every nation. And he rose from the dead and defeated death and now sits on the throne as Lord over everything. Not just over those who worship him, over his people, but he is Lord over everything. And, and I know we... We have a tendency to use common phrases and expressions. We would say things like, you need to make Jesus your Lord and Saviour, or that Jesus is Lord over some areas of my life, but, but maybe you know, I need to give over to, to other things. But, but Jesus, we don't, we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Our problem is that we refuse to recognise the Lordship that He already has. We just need to submit to that Lordship rather than continue in rebellion. And, and that's, that's exactly the advice of this closing section, is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. So look down in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So again, just like the first psalm, we're faced with two different options. Go down the path of the wicked. And again, he uses the exact same words that 
that those who go down that path will perish. Or we can delight in God's word, delight in his instructions, meditate on his word day and night. And only then can we become one of his covenant people where we can worship the true God. And again, I I asked at at the end of Psalm 1, how do we actually become one of his covenant people? Well, it depends on what we do in response to Psalm 2. Do you reject God's Messiah or do you take refuge in him? They, They are the two options that we're given again. The only way that we can head any further into this book of Psalms, this whole series in which we come together to worship God, you can only go further into worshiping God if you've become one of his covenant people and sought refuge in the Messiah. So we can try and worship God in in a number of different ways. We can gather together and sing songs of praise. That's one way in which we worship God. We can worship God with our life, offering it in service to God, with our actions, with our prayers, all these different things that we can do to worship God. But there's only one entrance to go into in which we can then offer acceptable worship to God. And that's through God's Messiah, Jesus. And if you don't come to God through Jesus, then you're not coming to the God of the Bible, the true God, at all. You're worshipping something, but it isn't God. And we have every good reason to take refuge in God's Messiah. Because, because the decision is pretty obvious as well. I mean, the kings were given the option here, either take refuge in the Messiah or perish. But we actually have something that's so much better than what the original audience had. In the Old Testament, they would have uh, promises from God that there would someday be a Messiah. There would someday be a king that would rule over them, not just in a, a temporal throne, but an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, a heavenly throne. There, there were promises given that this Messiah would come and fulfill all of their sacrificial system. They, they had a system in which they had to keep coming back to have their sins atoned for. They were waiting for this to be their, their sins to truly be taken care of. And so the way in which people would get saved in the Old Testament, they would trust in the promises of God. They would trust and have faith in God that he would one day fulfill these promises. That's why we have something so much better. We don't just trust that God will someday fulfill his promises. We already see them fulfilled in Jesus. We get to look at exactly how he's fulfilled it. We get to trust in that, something so sure and so tangible and real. So when we see the path of the wicked and the righteous, we should realise that that's us. We've been down that path of the wicked. We've plotted against God's plans. We've rejected his law. We've been the scoffers. That God's Messiah, the chosen king, offers salvation. Salvation from the judgment that should come because of that path that we've gone down. The very sins, the the acts of rebellion that we've committed in going down that path can't be ignored by God. We see in these passages the wrath and the fury of God that, that sin leads to a judgment in which we perish. Death is the consequence for sin. So when it talks about 
God's love and forgiveness. It, it, it doesn't mean that he simply ignores our sins. It means that he deals with it. And the way that he dealt with that was through a substitute. So how do we avoid that perishing that it talks about? It's when Jesus came and took that judgment. He perished. He died on the cross to take that judgment for us. It was the very sins that we committed were laid upon Christ. The very sins that you've committed this week, this day, were laid upon Christ and He died instead of us. But he didn't stay there. We, we, don't, we don't worship a dead saviour. You see, the Messiah, the king of this psalm too, is one who, who isn't like the other kings. We had one king after another in Israel who would come and live, normally fail miserably, and then die. But now we have a king who actually was raised from the dead and lives eternally he is the king that we should submit to. He's the king that we should take refuge in. I really like that language. In the New Testament, it normally talks about having faith in, in Christ, but I, I really like this language here that we take refuge in the Son. He's our only hope. He's our only way of not fearing that judgment, not fearing perishing. The only way to know that we're safe and in God's arms and forgiven by Him is to take refuge in the Messiah. He's the only one that can actually take care of your sins. And then if you've done that, if you've sought refuge in Jesus, then we can know that we're on that safe and prosperous path, heading towards eternal life. No matter what comes our way, we will not be shaken. We'll be like the tree planted by the river. Our roots will run deep. We know that we have our life in Christ no matter what comes our way. We know that even when the judgment comes, when it talks about the wind blowing and the chaff is blown away, that's the judgment of God. But we don't have to fear that if we're in Christ, if we have our refuge in Him. And so where do we go from there? What do we do? We praise and we thank and we worship Jesus for the rest of eternity in, in our lives, in our church, in our singing. As we go through this book of Psalms, it's all about worshipping Jesus. And so these are the things that I want us to keep in mind as we go through the rest of the series. Is to make sure and to know, are you on, on the path to destruction or are you one of God's covenant people? And the way to know that, which path you're on, is whether you've sought your refuge in Jesus. That's why it's the opening to this book of Psalms. That's why it's the, the door by which we enter in, is Jesus the Messiah? Our, our path to God so that we can worship Him.